Hey friends, you're listening to Go Home Baba, You're Drunk, an irreverent media podcast. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hey, everybody. This is Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, the podcast where we think about all the things that we used to believe and we drink about it. My name is Justin. I'm a former evangelical, ex-evangelical, former pastor, hashtag former clergy, what all of those various things. I'm now not in that world anymore, but I'm in this world just as a human being and just wondering what the hell happened. So I'm joined today by my delightful co-host uh, from across the coast. Hi. Yeah, I'm Tori. I was also in into, you know, being a weird zealot for weird reasons. Don't fully understand it in retrospect, which is actually why I left. So very over white evangelicalism. We'll just say that. We are joined today by a by a friend of the pod. I think we can say that you've you've been on two times oh, now. Hell so yeah. you're a friend of the pod now. I think that's I <laughs> think first, that's how first that repeat rules. guest. I think yeah, I'm true. Yeah, you are the first repeat guest. You were our first guest, and you're the first repeat guest. This is fantastic. Do you guys do I get like a robe or something like they do for SNL? Can we we, we like will at some do point if we ever <laughs> get around to doing merch. Okay. <laughs> you will get some. It'll be okay. it'll be God is my dad. God is my father, but Satan is my daddy. Which one are yeah. we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. please. I'd like yes. three. Yeah. I'd like it on a gold necklace. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, but we're joined with Andrew Seidel, and he's the author of a new book, American Crusade: How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. He is also employed by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is super exciting. So he's on the pod today. Yay. It, it's it's just a joy to be on with you again. I, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, uh, it is. It's good to have you here. We we have a bit of an agenda for this podcast, but I think we mostly just want to have a conversation about the American crusade, because I think <laughs> Tori and I both were built a part of the American crusade at one point, and we we've abandoned ship wisely. <laughs> well done. Bravo. Congrats. You know, I, of all my life accomplishments, that may have been the greatest. <laughs> I may have I peaked mean, when like, I left bye. the church. I like, but it's it's such an impressive thing to be able to do. You know, I, I wrote um, for Religion Dispatches. I don't remember when this was now. It was a few months back, but maybe in the winter even. I wrote a love letter to ex-evangelicals and people deconstructing because I'm, I'm just so blown away by your ability to do that, to like question your most deeply held beliefs and have the intellectual courage and fortitude to like follow that to the end result and then 
shed everything you've been told to believe from the beginning of time. Like that's amazing to me. And I, I didn't have that. My, my mom was like, go, go to the bar mitzvah with your Jewish friends, go to temple and go to Catholic mass with your Catholic friends. So it was very easy for me to be like, yeah, none of this is probably right. And I genuinely don't know whether I would have been able to do it had I been raised and steeped in it the way y'all were like, to me, it's, it's, it truly is a remarkable feat that you should be pretty fucking proud of. Oh, thank you. It's not easy. No, <laughs> like, like we, and we have uh, no. a lot of our audience, like is, is kind of fresh out of that. And it's like, what, like it's, it's very much like getting decanted from the matrix moment. Like a lot of those feelings yeah. uh, where you're like, what, what even is the world? Like, I, like, how do I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in therapy right now for like, how do I find out what I want? Like we just had a whole episode a couple weeks ago, like where Tori and I were like, we don't know what we want. Our therapist says we can want things. Not, not that we have the same therapist. No, 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 no. Separately, our therapists are like, oh, you have needs and things that you want. And that's, you should probably, you should probably figure that out. Like, oh, right. It's it's actually okay. It's acceptable. Exactly. To be a person with needs. Wow. Yeah. Like it's almost like there was an an evolutionary function for having needs. And ignoring that is, is really not, good for cultists. It, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. great for self-care and humanity generally, but. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, of course it's hard. It's a system that's designed to, to keep you there. I mean, through millennia, like millennia of trial and error, they've designed it that way. So that's why, I mean, it truly is. It's an impressive feat. And I, I know people. A lot of times, you know, you talked about feeling decanted, like a lot of times they feel this whole mix of anger and shame and all that. And like, I just, I, I'm just in awe. Like, I, I think, and I, I hope there's a little bit of pride running through those feelings. Cause I think you should feel a little bit of that. It's an amazing intellectual accomplishment. Oh, well, thank you. And everybody should be in therapy, not just evangelicals, like the whole world with the world would be a better yes. place if yes. everybody went to therapy. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Okay. So we so, solved that problem. Yeah, good. Yeah, we <laughs> solved it. So actually, I, honestly, I think I can't remember exactly when it was, but last time you were on, I don't think I don't think January six had happened since the last time so. you were on. Um, so so things are happening, um, and and you definitely have your your specialties on the legal side of things, uh, with you know with the Supreme Court and freedom of religion and. Or freedom, freedom from religion, even. Uh, awesome. So, I guess my first question is: on a scale of like one to ten, one being we're fine, <laughs> and <bad>. ten being <laughs> if you don't have a bunker already, you're fucked. Like, where do you feel like we're at right now? Uh, right now. Yeah, I, I'm going to say right now as in October today. Yes, I mean, actually today uh, yeah. at this particular moment in time, I would put us at like probably between a three and a half and a four right now. I think a lot depends on the outcome of this election. At, at, at this particular moment, the authoritarians, the, the, the fascists, the wannabe suppress everybody else except conservative, white, straight Christian men don't have power over any branch of the government except the judiciary, which doesn't have an army or a way to enforce its decisions. If they get control of Congress, 
in the midterms, I am significantly more worried. And two years from now, during the presidential election, if they get control of Congress and or the presidency, then I I would I would jack us up to like a nine. I'm I will tell you that I am fully expecting some violence surrounding the midterm elections. I don't think it will be to the level that we saw on January 6th, only because they don't have either of the branches of government right now. Um, and I think that does make a difference. I, you know, there's there's not going to be a, a constitutional crisis at the top with Biden and the Democrats in power the way we we had on January 6th. So I don't think it will be as bad, but I am I am deeply worried about the prospect of political violence with the midterms. Yeah, I'm it. And the wild thing to me is like they're threatening themselves like Donald Trump just like did like a low key death threat against Mitch McConnell for mildly supporting keeping the government open. It, it, it would not surprise me if the MAGA wing of the Republican Party starts taking out the I wouldn't even I wouldn't even call like Mitch Everybody McConnell. Else. Mitch McConnell is like side. the cynical centrist side, maybe. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know where Mitch McConnell sits because he has no ideology other than Power. whatever Money. the fuck he wants yeah. to do. <laughs> but it wouldn't surprise me if all the violence comes from inside the house. They'll blame they'll blame Antifa or whatever, but or woke tivism. What, whatever. <laughs> I like that actually. That's fun. Woke tivism. But it's it's like, yeah, it, it's it's incredibly concerning to me. And it's concerning to me that. I don't I I don't know if it's the pandemic or just Trump fatigue, but a lot of people are very disengaged, I think now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than maybe uh, certainly they should be. And and I'll, I'll put myself in that camp too. Like I I think when the pandemic hit, I unsubscribed to every political podcast I had. I just was like I I can't. Hard. It was like, exhausting. Yeah. And and you're in you're in it every day. Yeah. So thank you for that work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, I wrote, the, I wrote this report with a bunch of other experts on the January 6th insurrection, um, January 6th, Christian nationalism in the January 6th insurrection, jointly published it with the Baptist Joint Committee, uh, Andrew Whitehead, Sam Perry, and Thea Butler, Jamar Tisby, Catherine Stewart, all contributed to this report. And, you know, we, we looked at the role that, Christian nationalism played that day. And in one of my sections of the report, and and when we launched the report, the thing that was really striking to me is that it was very clear that Christian nationalism provided the permission structure for the violence that day. And not just the violence, but the actual act of attempting to overthrow the free and fair election, of of giving them a mental license to go into the the beating heart of our democracy and try to overturn it. And, And to me, that was was the most overlooked aspect of the day until until recently you know i mean one thing that's that has changed and that i am taking heart from right now is finally people are starting to wake up to the the very real threat that white christian nationalism poses to a government of the people for the people and by the people but it is fundamentally opposed to a pluralist democratic society and government at at its core it is out to privilege the few at the expense of the many and that is just stands in opposition to any kind of democratic government so it's it's a threat 
to the America that we all are aspiring to create. And I, I think finally, 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 we're starting to see a lot of the country and the media wake up to this and start raising the alarm. And I was actually talking, um, I was in DC last week at a briefing on Capitol Hill about Christian nationalism that Jamie Raskin and the Interfaith Alliance were putting on and Jack Jenkins, who's a reporter who's been talking about this since even before my first book on Christian nationalism came out in 2019. And he was saying, you know, I remember being at a panel with you in 2019 in September, and you said Christian nationalism is an existential threat to the Republic. And you said it to a room full of like 250 reporters and like nobody paid attention. I was like, I'm glad you remember that, Jack, because like I remember it too. And I, yeah. <laughs> I want to shake all of you. Please pay attention to this. <laughs> um, but now everybody, now, I mean, you know, it's it's almost a mainstream talking point now. So I, I that, that's, an, that's one of the reasons I, I've, da- I've downgraded us on your initial scale there, Justin, from like from maybe like above a five to like a three or four. I feel like we are making some progress on that front. And certainly the Christian nationalists are running scared. If you see like, Family Research Council is hosting this big briefing next week about how Christian nationalism is just a term to suppress the white Christian voters in this country because we all know mm-hmm. they're, they're so persecuted and oppressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, they tweeted that a couple of days ago. They're like, yeah. Christian nationalism is just a scare tactic. We, they just don't want Christians living out their faith in public. Don't be intimidated. It's like, but trying to force everyone to live out your faith. <laughs> It's yeah. not the same as living out your faith. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, we want to put our faith into law. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're, yeah. We're going to force you to live by our narrow conception of when life begins. You know, we're going to. Right. All, anyway. Okay. Yeah. And, and like, what's really, what's really fascinating about that is it's like, we're victimized if you don't, like, if you don't agree to being having your life coerced, controlled, restricted by our ideology, like you are harming us. Yeah. If, if you don't defer to our power and privilege. Exactly. And, and exactly. Don't sh- yeah. Don't show us the proper de- deference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, like uh, this was fascinating because this is really bleeds into the book because Samuel Alito, one of the justices on our Supreme Court, after he overturned Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision, he went to a religious freedom conference in Rome, of all places, uh, put on by this religious freedom group at Notre Dame, which is, there's all kinds of incestuous ties to the Supreme Court itself. It's, 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 it's not a good look. But anyway, his speech is basically that. He's like, we, we are no longer getting the deference to which we are accustomed and to which we are due by virtue of being conservative white Christian men in America. Oh, God. And, and right. I mean, the, the, like all I can, all I'm hearing when he's talking is why aren't you giving us the deference that we're due? And it, it is motivating so much of what we are seeing happening right now. And I, I get it as, as someone who's a straight white man and has had to deal with privilege. It is, it is a wake up, but it's, it is interesting. I, I'm glad this came up because I think that wake up is the same for everybody in the sense that, you know, anytime you come, are awakened to privilege, even if you're not a straight white man, like there's privilege exists on multiple tiers in this country. But when when you realize you're at the you are at the top of the privilege chain, and like I think you can go two ways. You can either go like, oh, like I need to try to make space, like I need to sit back for a second, or you go like, they're gonna take it away from me, and I've got to fight to defend it now. And it's 
it it is interesting like how how offended they get like i i remember sitting in churches and being like you know minister you know ministers used to be respected and now we're not like like but there's no there's no self examination to be like why aren't ministers respected anymore like no it's just we're owed this we are we are simply owed it by doesn't virtue of the fact how yeah. we behave yeah doesn't matter how we treat people like this is just yeah it's it's the it's the default in their mind right yeah. and it's like not being treated as like the not being treated with the most honor i guess the most respect not being deferred to in every situation again it's like to they consider that harmful yeah and it's, so they, they think it's oppression right and so but then that becomes a justification for their violence mm-hmm. yeah. right it's like you're harming me so in self-defense i'm going to attack you <laughs> you're harming me by not deferring to me and my ideas and I mean, so i get to harm you preemptive war is the paradigm literally literally that's what it is that's what it is which i have to say i mean this is this is exactly what i am talking about in american crusade right i mean and when i'm talking about weaponizing religious freedom the weapon that that they are seeking is a weapon for maintaining that dominant group status right and and it is the expansion of equality and the withering religious and racial hegemony that's the contested territory in many of the religious freedom cases that uh, that I talk about in the book. And so like these are these are deeply conservative Christians who are accustomed to deference and privilege and they feel they feel 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 that the expansion of freedom to other folks violates their rights. I mean, this is, and it's such a problem because parity is not oppression and equality, even when it means the erosion of privilege is not discrimination. And, you know, we're not actually in most of these instances, expanding rights or giving new rights. We are recognizing rights that have always existed under the law, but were never enforced or were never extended to, to everybody. Like we are affirming the humanity of our brothers and our sisters and our siblings and admitting that we've been wrong all along. And as we realize the aspirational values that are written into, you know, we the people or equal justice under law or all are created equal and the other founding maxims, as, as we recognize that humans are human and worthy of rights, conservative white Christian America is dying this slow demographic death and it is just rebelling and they are rebelling and raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declared war. And that's what American Crusade is all about. So when now it's a def- maybe there is a definitive starting point, but like when did this start? And I feel like why am I just now hearing about it? <laughs> <laughs> you're hearing you're just now hearing about it. It's the easier one. That's because they're they're they've almost <laughs> they've almost accomplished their goals. Uh, yeah. you know this is a crusade and it, it, it's it's a war of conquest and they've almost consummated that conquest, right? They've almost re- reconquered their holy land. It started there there are two starting points. Really I do think it started back with Brown versus Board of Education uh, when the Supreme Court declared segregated public schools unconstitutional. I think you can tie a a lot, and I do this in the book, a lot of what happens traces back to that. At least a lot of the seeds were planted. I I just focus more in the book on the most recent decade. Really, I trace it to 2010. And in 2010, the Supreme Court decided this case. 
it was a case about where another collision of religion and the law. And it involved a cross on public lands uh, in the Mojave Desert, like a, in a million acres of land. And the short version of the story is that Congress said, well, we're going to transfer one acre of land under this cross to a private group. And that group can only have that one acre of land so long as they never take down the cross. Right. So, so the whole point of this land transfer was to make sure that the unconstitutional <laughs> Christian cross stays on government land. So it's just, it's it's like a it's a sham, right? Everybody knows it's a sham. It's like it's the most ridiculous. It's why people hate lawyers, kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. and the Supreme Court says, "Oh yeah, go for it. You, they, we are on board. You can keep that cross up. This sham remedy is." perfectly acceptable. There's no constitutional violation anywhere the cross gets to stay. And that is what I really peg the modern crusade to, because that was the John Roberts court announcing that it was open for business, right? It's like, bring us your religious freedom cases and we will privilege your conservative Christianity. That is what we want. Like, this is the arrangement. And if it's not clear, we're going to make it clear in a case next year and then the year after that. And then again, the year after that. And again, was and this, again, again, was this before or after the masterpiece cake? This was before. Okay. And this, so the masterpiece cake shop cases is one of the, the many cases farther down the road that the court. So this, this is what I call the Deus vault moment. Cause right when the, when the first crusade was launched, it was to cries of Deus vault, Deus vault, God yeah. wills it, God wills it. Right. And then you have, you have Pope urban sending, all these people to the Holy Land to reconquer that territory. And that was really this Supreme Court's Dave's vault moment and where you start to see this attempt to weaponize religious freedom for the benefit, again, of conservative white Christians to, to maintain that racial and religious hegemony over American society. I, I am, I want to be careful here. I don't want to just, mostly just for legal reasons, I don't want to disclose too much, but I, one of the cases, one of the, it was, ah, I can, it's public. I'll just say it. The wedding photographer case from New York, or not New York, New Mexico. I think that went to the Supreme Court before this moment. That one was shot down. I know mm -hmm. about that one because I was roommates in college with one of the people involved in that case. Really? Yeah. But I think that one was shot down. It was kind of one of those early waves of like conscientious objectors to homosexuality existing. Uh, and... <laughs> And so it's just interesting to see the progression because that was, I think that was like 2005, 2006, when that one kind of came up the world. And, and that one was kind of the court. I think the Supreme Court said, like, we're not even going to hear it. Correct. We're just going to uphold, uphold the lower court's decision. And, but now it's like, oh, anyone can come in now. Sure. Like, you don't want to bake a cake for a gay person. Don't bake. Well, and that, that's the interesting part about it, because the court does get to decide it's the cases that it wants to take. And it's very clear, and I may, and I, I, I think I lay this out in the book, that they want to take these cases, right? So, so like, American Crusade is not like a typical law book. It, it's an, it is an attempt to expose this crusade to warp our law. So it shows that the Supreme Court justices are eager and ready to take these cases. They want to hear mm. these cases. So it's depending on the year, it's something like the Supreme Court rejects like 97 to 99% of the cases that come its way. But it has been deciding almost every religious freedom case that comes its way. And 
it's been deciding them in favor of conservative Christians. Like, it, 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 like the legal principle is out the window. The principle is Christians win. I thought that the Supreme Court was this august body that was supposed to, you know, protect us from the evils of politics. Are you telling me that there's bias on the Supreme Court? I am. Uh, and and I, I sense some sort of irony or maybe sarcasm in your voice there. I, a, lot of pe- a lot of people suffer under that myth, though, you know. We're taught it in schools. If you go to law school, you are drinking that Kool-Aid. You are. But it's also everywhere in the media, yeah. right? Like the yeah. media acts like, oh, it's just this very like unbiased sort of, we have to give the Supreme Court all this respect because they're not playing politics. You know, they're above all that, which is like blatantly false, like is yeah. not true. <laughs> no, it's absolutely but not for true. for some reason, like that's just sort of the narrative that gets pushed out a lot of the time of like so we can't we can't criticize this like they're they're not they're not being partisan right like they're above all of this and it's like they're they write books like they're clearly not you're a hundred percent right and part of the problem is that the it's such an insular body and we know so little about what happens that the media who are dialed in depend on that access in a way that you don't often see with other that makes sense yeah yeah journalists so there's a reluctance to criticize it i i would recommend anybody who's interested in reading more about that there's a new online news source called balls and strikes about the supreme court and it is already (laughs) well it's and it's a play on john roberts saying during his confirmation hearing you know we're just umpires we just call balls and strikes and they're they of course they abbreviate themselves bs um and they do some fantastic reporting on this but but you're you're absolutely right but i mean both of you and one of the things that i try to point out in the book is that we are we really do have to unshackle our minds from the myth of this supreme court as as the downtrodden the defender of the downtrodden the impartial arbiter of truth and justice one because it's not true and two, because the crusade depends upon people believing this myth. And it's like, obvious if you stop to think about it, but, you know, we've been, we've been told this, we see it in media, like, but McConnell and Trump and Leonard Leo cheated and stole and packed the courts to put their collaborators in place. Yes. And, and they didn't do that because they were putting people in there who were going to administer justice even handedly. <laughs> right. Right. They did it because they knew those people wouldn't. Like, and and historically, this the image that we have of the Supreme Court as the defender of the downtrodden and that impartial arbiter of truth and justice is the exception to the historical rule. Oh like, my God, SCOTUS <laughs> is awful! Like fucking awful. Yeah, yeah like, it really is. Like we've had like, like decades where it was okay. Yeah, like and the then, Warren no. Court was like reasonable, like, and you get Brown versus Board of Education, and you get like some really some good decisions. Uh, Gideon versus Wainwright is this great decision, which gives us the right to counsel when you're accused of a crime. It's like pretty fucking important. But really, this court is a deeply regressive and conservative body. I mean, this is the court of Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal. This is the court of Dred Scott and fugitive slave laws, of trying to suffocate yep. the New Deal in the cradle of gutting the power of the 14th Amendment, one with the blood of so many Americans during the Civil War, of Japanese internment camps, of Muslim bans, of billionaires and corporations and political gerrymandering and vote suppression, of abolishing abortion and reproductive freedom in the name of their narrow religious beliefs. Like This is not a vindicator of human rights. It's a threat to them. Yes, 
Yeah, it literally is. Yeah, I'm a member of the Supreme Court bar too. I say that as. I don't even know what that means. So I'm just going to pretend like it's fine. <laughs> it <laughs> means it means I can go into the Supreme Court and argue a case if I want. Oh, I see. I see. Um, yeah. Well, tell them. Tell them what I we honestly said. like. I have dreams about this. Uh, I've, I've never <laughs> confessed this publicly, but I have dreams about like arguing cases and and being like like Kavanaugh asking me a question, be like, "No, Brett, and you're a fucking idiot." Like, <laughs> also, I don't think of you as a Supreme Court justice. You, I think of you as like someone you're incredibly. A, yeah, you're a rape. fraud. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you, exactly. You thought your calendars from when you were 18 vindicated you. Yeah, like squee. Like to me, like I don't know much about law. Maybe you can correct me, Andrew. But I, I feel like whether or not he sexually assaulted someone, putting that aside for a moment, the fact that he thought that his calendar entries from when he was what 18, 19 years old completely vindicated him <laughs> as like admissible evidence. To me, that 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 alone is like, mm, yeah, maybe There's you some- don't know what's going on. There are so many moments from that his confirmation hearing fight absurdity that are that are such red flag. I mean, he screams yeah. about like you are going to pay the price, you're going to reap the whirlwind. Like yeah, that is he is threatening his political opponents. Yeah, we just act yeah. like that's not a big deal. You know, I I I write in the book. So, so I did essentially devote each chapter to to a case in the book and. I was in the courtroom for the Bladensburg cross case, which was another giant cross on government land that my friend Monica Miller argued for the American Humanist Association. And it was one of Kavanaugh's first oral arguments. And I was in the courtroom for it. This is 2018. And it was just like, I mean, Monica is, she's younger than I am. I don't know how old she is, but she's like a young female attorney. And she gets up to argue this case. And like, he asked her a question and it was just, so jarring to see like knowing what he was accused of and that he skated through this process and is now has this lifetime appointment that's going to require impeaching him to get him off that court and just the entitlement and like watching him ask this young female attorney a question was just it was so jarring to see and i can't imagine what monica felt in in that moment and how how awful it must have been to have to maintain her composure and respond but you know, I mean, like Dahlia Lithwick, who's the Supreme Court reporter for Slate, along with Mark Joseph Stern, after that whole thing, she's like, I'm I'm never going back to the Supreme Court. And she writes about that in, in her new book, uh, Lady Justice. Like she, she's a Supreme Court reporter who will not go into the Supreme Court and watch oral argument for that reason now. It's, it's, a, it's a broken, partisan, completely fucked up body. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's like one thing that's really interesting because having grown up sort of you know, in the like focus on the fat, focus on the family, like Phyllis Schlafly, this like culture war bullshit, right. Of like, we have to have a lot of babies so that people will vote Republican because we can't win anybody over with our arguments because they all suck. So Mm -hmm. they're like, we're just going to out procreate the libs. So it was very weird getting kind of to the other side of that and realizing like how many like liberal folks really sort of, I don't know, like venerated Supreme Court justices in this like weird way. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here as like very typically in in my childhood and like most of my life, I've lived in like Portland and Seattle, like my whole life, right? being like the only black person in the room very frequently. And people are like, oh my God, yeah, whatever. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not saying any, not not trashing on her, her legacy at all, but it's just like, we're just so like 
they just worship this person. And I'm kind of sitting there going like, you guys know that like the Supreme Court is bad, right? Like most 90% of what they have done has been really, really, really bad. <laughs> like nobody got it, right? It was just like, from my perspective, just because, you know, and we didn't really talk about that. I don't know. Like I was like, I was homeschooled, Justin. I don't know if you guys talked about the Supreme Court very much in your like American history. Yeah. <laughs> the joke that we got as an American history course in you know christian education but like we didn't we didn't actually talk about the supreme court that much but there was what we did talk about was how like we needed to get the supreme court in order to to capture it yes in order to overturn roe versus wade i was told that when i was nine years old yep wow yep you know i I have friends that i was sitting in a bar and i was a little bit drunk which is probably good because my reaction was slow but there was a friend of mine and he was saying he's like he was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And then his dad said, you know what? I know you don't like him, but we got to think about the Supreme Court. And he changed his vote to Trump for the Supreme Court. That was it. Like like right. that, that bit of propaganda is so strong. And I, I was like, motherfucker, I thought you were smart. Like, I just like, it was, just, it didn't come out of my mouth. And I, I'm, it was, I'm glad I didn't say exactly what I was thinking, but I was like, what? Like, what? Like, I was just, I, that's was what, so, I mean, that's why my parents but, voted for Trump. I mean, they're all in at this point, right? Like they, they, they're, they're fully, I don't know, red pilled or whatever they're calling it now. Yeah. But like, that's why my parents were like, well, we can't, we can't vote for Hillary Clinton, right? Like the Supreme court, we have to like, we have to make abortion illegal. Well, I mean, and the math is like on their favor, right? Like if you're at whatever yeah. the 60 million yep. or whatever it is, I don't remember the number now, but like, but you know, and this is why I date a lot of the, the seeds of the crusade back to Brown versus board, because it was after that in the fight to maintain segregation in some way, shape or form that you have, you know, the moral majority and Paul Weyrick and Jerry Falwell choosing abortion as the wedge issue that they would use to motivate their voters and divide the country. And again, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right about like, it's really interesting to hear you talk about it, Tori, how like you're like told so early on that, you know, you have to capture the court because like, so Leonard Leo is universally recognized as the man who orchestrated the hostile takeover Mm. of the Supreme court in the last like 25 years. And I tell the story in the book, there's a former employee who kind of defected and he, he talked about Leo's mission and he, this is what he said. He said, quote, Leo, quote, figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception. Conservatives didn't stand a chance if public mm-hmm. opinion prevailed. So they needed to stack the courts. And like, it, it just goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Like, they're admitting the anti-democratic nature of what they're trying to do. Like the goal, like if we don't stack the court, the majority is going to rule. Like if we don't stack the court, democracy is going to work. And yeah. so, you know, we have, mm-hmm. we have, and we have the numbers. Like we know that Leo's group, his, he has a couple different groups. He ran Federalist Society, uh, Judicial Crisis Network, et cetera. We know they spent $540 million packing the Supreme Court from 2014 to 2020. And then this summer, the news broke that his new group, which is devoted more towards 
democracy, I'm doing air quotes for all you listeners, but you know, vote suppression is what that almost certainly means, raised 1.6 billion, billion with a B in one donation. Right. So that's more than a billion that they spent capturing the court. So you learn all about this in American Crusade. And there's already an update, which is available for free on my website. But like, Mm. and another part of Leo's job, this is the other quote that just always blows my mind. He was described. So he was basically in charge of like selecting judges. Not These are people who are going to make good judges and filtering names into right. uh, all the... It was like the, the short list of... Yes, he wrote, he wrote yeah. Trump's short lists. Right. I mean, we know he did. Um, and he filtered, but he also filtered names into the Bush White House. And he was described as the quote, for judicial nominees, quote, the monitor of the nominee's ideological purity, right? The monitor of the nominee's ideological purity. So like... He's responsible, we know, for the confirmation of John Roberts, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. He and Thomas are old friends. There's like video of Leo and Thomas joking on stage about how Leo's the third most powerful man in America. And Thomas thinks that's the funniest th- fucking thing he's ever heard. All six of them were members of the Federalist Society. I mean, that that's six votes on the Supreme Court. And yeah. Leo personally chose five of them for their ideology, like a crusader ideology. Yeah, absolutely. And it was always, at least from like where I was sort of situated, like it was always, it was always an anti-democratic mission, right? Like yeah. I was, you know, like I talk about this all the time. My mom was like an anti-abortion activist in Oregon when I was a little kid. But like, so I heard a lot of this, I heard a lot of this bullshit. It was just like, it was just like straight up. It was like, well, if everybody votes, then we can't win. Right. So we have to do some other things to sort of make it so that we have a fair shot. And we have to do democracy is unfair. Like, right. Well, to save babies. Come on. You want to yeah. kill babies, Justin? So, but Give no, me it was, one it right was, now. It was explicitly like, it was explicitly anti democratic. Right. It was yeah. like, well, if all of the black people are voting, I'm like, yeah, we're probably not going to, we're not going to make any. And they weren't, they weren't wrong. Right. Like, if you just going back to like, Carter, like the Democrats controlled almost everything. They didn't really have it. They weren't really doing anything with it, but like there were fewer, there were fewer than a dozen states that were controlled by like the GOP in terms of like the state legislature and the governor in like 76, 77, like that kind of time frame, Right. So like there've been multiple times and this is what freaks me out. Like, there've been so many times, like since I've been alive, that people have been like, you know, the Republican Party, like they're, they're on life support, like they're pretty much dead. And it's like, no, this is not, they're a zombie. Like, they're you a zombie at this them. point. Like, they're <laughs> the undead zombie. corpse of Ronald Reagan that Truly. just will not, yeah, yeah, will not it's go like, away. They, they will not go away. And, and I like it, I'm, I'm kind of I, like, I find it I, maybe more fascinating because, again, of like where, like the way that I was raised and like the person that raised yeah. me specifically. Right. But it was always very clearly like this anti-democratic. We don't, we don't want black people voting. We don't want feminists voting. Yeah. Right. And that was just sort of like, okay, well, if everybody gets a fair shot, if every, if, if every vote is equal, then like there, we can't win this. And they weren't, they weren't, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong in 89. They weren't wrong. They're not wrong now. Right. They can't win just like with, without the voter suppression piece mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. No, they absolutely can't. I mean, I don't know if you remember uh, the, the Paul Way- Wayrick 
Weyrich, I don't remember how you say his name, quote, it floats around every now and then, but he says, I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by the majority of people, but like the majority of voters. And he talks about how our leverage mm-hmm. in election goes up as the voting population goes down. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he's the, the hour in his quote are, are Christians. Like yeah. he's talking about Christians, you know, I mean, he's the one yeah. who gave the moral majority its name. He's the one he founded Alec, uh, the Heritage mm-hmm. Foundation. I mean, and, and in that speech, he's talking to, it's like several thousand preachers and lay people right. from, from different right. states in this two day gathering that like Phyllis Schlafly is there and Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and Ronald Reagan. Like, I mean, it all is, mm-hmm. uh, that's it's, all so much. It's no, I, I mean, again, I'm just, I, it's it's hard. It's not hard. It's it's weird. It's almost like this out of body experience because a lot of a lot of people who are now ex evangelicals, I think, kind of got a front row seat to this like to the, like the beginning of this crusade, right? To like yeah. take America back for God, because our parents, my parents, were like in it, and and like you know, I know that. I'm ba- I basically said this like four times and but it it was it was very explicitly stated right that like voter suppression was the tool that we needed to use right like mm-hmm. you want to put your really egregious shit on the ballot on like non-presidential election years because that's when the democrats don't show up right mm-hmm. these are the, again these are things that are being told to me before I'm in junior high I am learning about these you're like be- you're being taught ideas. like yeah, we're being taught. We were taught political strategy from right. like infants, <laughs> right. and then and then now that we're out and we're like, hey, this is your political Guys. strategy. But no, and I was like, we no, just, we just want we just want there to be a secure election. Like, yeah. no bullshit. Like, I know, I know the playbook. I, I have it yes. right here. Yes. <laughs> like, it's, it's yes. Like, it was you. You burned it into my brain when I was yeah, a child. It's like that Bane quote. Like you. I was born into the dark. <laughs> like, like, don't. No, 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 no. He only, he only adopted it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it also, it worked too, right? Like they captured the courts as this anti-democratic gambit and it worked. And so, you know, there's, I recount this study that was done recently. It doesn't, and it doesn't even account for the two most recent terms of the Supreme Court, which were just a disaster for relig- real religious freedom and for state church separation, but, but a huge win for conservative Christians. And before the courts were packed, the court ruled in favor of religion when religion and the law collided about like half the time, you know, like, like around 45%, which is, I mean, that's what you'd expect, right? Like fair. about half the time. Yeah. Um, but under the Roberts court, that win rate jumped up to 81%. And importantly, it's not a pro-religion shift. And I show this in the book with, I, I put faces on these stats in the, in the book. It's a pro-Christian shift. Yep. Yeah. Wasn't yeah, wasn't there a case where a was it a Muslim man wanted an imam present at his execution? Yeah, Dominique Gray. Didn't they shoot did they shoot it? I thought they shot it down or I yeah. can't remember the particular. Yeah, so that that's the case of Dominique Ray. I have a chapter on that. I think that really illustrates because that that also sparked a lot of outrage, but it also, it sparked other religious freedom challenges that Christians now bring and they are completely vindicated. The court and Dom, the, Dom, the case of Dominique Gray is like incredibly sad in my opinion. And like his crimes yeah. were horrific and he was going to die no matter what. And like capital punishment is a whole other thing. I'm happy to come on and talk about that for a minute. But this, he was saying, his lawyers were saying, look, you're forcing a Christian 
preacher to be in the room with him when he dies to provide him religious consolation and he's a muslim he's a black muslim like that he doesn't right. want that like right like if like how about we like let's just pause this for like a week or two so we can figure out this really important religious freedom issue supreme court that you keep talking like you keep talking about how religious freedom is so fucking important like can we pause and just figure this out before we kill the guy and in two paragraphs the conservatives on the court are like no nah, we're good go ahead i mean they, they don't mention religious freedom they don't mention the fact that his rights are being trampled like religious freedom is not important when it's a black muslim mm-hmm. it is important when it's a white christian yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's a very clear signal. And there's an evolution of d- death penalty, capital cases over the last few years that you can trace that in. And I, I show that. And, and the Muslim ban is, by the way, another really good example of this, where religious freedom claims matter, just not if you're not a white Christian, right? Like you're a brown Muslim from another country. So sorry. Why not? Yeah, religious you don't get freedom in. does not apply. And, and I mean, like, and uh, the numbers, by the way, are there too, right? So like mainstream Christianity won in 44% of the cases before Roberts and under Roberts, that doubles to 85%, right? So, so religious freedom has become a weapon of Christian privilege. Yeah, That mm-hmm. is where we are. I think that's a good place for us to take a quick break, refill beverages if you want. Oh, Capitalism okay. has to have its due. And uh, when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of what what can we do now because you know, we're we're in this state it sucks it, it it's messy but like what what can our normal old listener do now so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll get back uh, is burn it down an acceptable answer or i, yes, I think on so this, on this it show is. <laughs> on this show it is yes on this show it is all right i'll, I'll we'll see you in a minute first corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church it's a podcast about change it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side you can listen wherever you get your podcast and if you want to be a guest yes you regular person you can be a guest on the speaking in church podcast if you want to come on just let us know Hey, y'all. Thanks for putting up with the capitalism break with us. If you want to, uh, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash go home Bible. And yeah, you can, you can join our little community over there. If you sign up at a certain tier, you get a life verse inspired by the Holy spirit that you get to keep forever or not if you don't want it, because it's your life and you have agency, you get to make decisions. You also get to join our Discord, regardless of what tier you sign up at. And I think that we've got some some Discord questions from folks for this episode, which is awesome. Yeah, we do. So I, I put it out to our Discord, and I just wanted to ask, I think in summarizing, because there was, there was a message that I think most, if you've listened to this far, you probably think Christian nationalism is a problem. Like, I would, I would assume. If you Unless, don't, you're probably a Christian nationalist. Let's be yeah, true. This is probably not your podcast. Yeah. And so, like, and so we're speaking a lot to an in crowd here for the most part about these issues and and doing a lot of education. But as someone that has a lot of knowledge about this, and and Tori, I want you to answer this too. Like, 
what are ways that you can actually start broaching the subject with people that are actively or even passively supporting Christian nationalism, or maybe don't even think it's a problem. Like I, like I know people in my family that they're like, ah, Christian nationalism is, it's not, you know, like they're more afraid of socialism than they are Christian nationalism. Yeah. Like it's not reached that state. So how do you begin to form an argument, have a discussion with somebody about how serious this is when they're, evangelicals i think that like oh i was just gonna say like i think that and this is something actually that i wanted to ask andrew because i think that one of the things that we frequently end up doing and i think christian nationalism is a really good example of this but one of the things we frequently end up doing is like sort of capitulating to their language like their wording of stuff and that really bothers me like they don't like the term christian nationalism which is why in my opinion it's a really good idea to use it right they like i have I've pretty much completely stopped talking about abortion. Like I'm just like bodily autonomy, right? Like you get to decide what happens to your body. Cause that's a lot harder to argue with, right? Like there can be some like sympathy of like, oh yeah, well, I mean, don't you think it's kind of weird if somebody is like, you know, about to go into labor and they're like, ah, I decided, which is like, they make up these fictional scenarios, right? Like shit that doesn't ever actually happen. Or like, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that doctors should be forced to do abort. Like, like they just, they hear all these nonsense claims. So for me, I'm like, it's an issue of bodily autonomy. Do you think that the state should force you to do things with your body? Yes or no. Like, so I try to make it like really simple and I try to work really hard to not use any of their language, like their wording on stuff because they are really, really good at framing things (laughs) like religious freedom, right? Like that's what they call like their right to oppress people Mm -hmm. of other religions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They call it religious freedom, right? Like they're talking about like, well, I have rights too. Like I have a right to keep my kid from going to school with black kids, (laughs) right? It's like, that's not oppression. That's not oppressing somebody else. That's my right as, as a parent to choose who my kids spend time with. So you not letting me have that, you are taking away my rights, right? And it's, it's just all, it's this really weird fucked up framing around like harm and power and like who actually is being harmed and who actually has power. So for me, absolutely, like hundred percent, the jumping off point is like, don't use their language. Like you can be, you can be nice if like the situation calls for it, you can get kind of riled up if that's the kind of conversation you're having. Like, I'm not trying to dictate to people like, oh, you know, you have to coddle people's feelings or like, oh, you got to be a bully. Like, I don't, you know, I think if people are smart enough to kind of engage with the individuals they know or interact with in a way that that makes sense and won't completely like shut them down. But I like for me, the kind of the number one thing right now is just like, do not use their language. Like, don't give them an inch on that because that's a huge part. That's a huge part of like how they've how they've won a lot of these arguments. Right. Is by taking things and like taking words and twisting them. Yeah. Yeah. Like sort of fit that. Their so you want, like because then they'll usually say like, so you want to kill innocent babies? Right. Like, it's like, it has nothing to do with that. Babies are not like, involved. There's and no I babies. joked earlier, like, sure, give me one. Like, but, <laughs> but like, that's, but like, okay, well that, that's a frame that right. not everybody thinks that. And that, right. or, and so, yeah. How do you begin to go like, whoa, well, wait a second here. Like we're not talking about killing innocent babies. We're talking about women and men, honestly, too, being able to decide what they do with their bodies. So I think all that's right. And I think there's even a case to be made to go at them and, and take 
to co-opt some of their language. Like it was one of the things I talk about in the founding myth, my, my first book, which is the subtitle of which is why Christian nationalism is un-American is that we need better facts, but we also need better arguments and, and arguments that are not just cerebral, but that like strike at that emotional core of what, of their being at their identity, because they are trying to rewrite our identity by rewriting American history. They're literally trying to rewrite the secular DNA of our country. And so I try to give people better arguments in the founding myth. And like, one of the things that I like to talk about is like, I say in that book that Judeo-Christian principles are un-American and the word un-American makes some people squeamish. There's an inherent value judgment in it. We have mm -hmm. different ideas of what it means to be an American. And I, I get all that. And I think it makes, it makes sense. Um, but I also think there's value in hitting them with that. First of all, it's not something that they've ever experienced. And I also think that part of the reason that we are uncomfortable with the American slash un-American label, even though patriotism has no religion. So like, I mean, pause just for a second if you're listening and just ask yourself, am I uncomfortable with that American slash un-American label? because Christian nationalism is already so close to completing its mission, because they've done such a good job of corrupting patriotism and conflating it with nationalism and conflating it with MAGA hats. Have they done such a good job of corrupting what it should mean to be an American that I don't want to consider myself part of it? Because I don't think that my historically accurate claim in the founding myth, which is that secularism is the true legacy of the American experiment is the problem. I actually think it's just that they've done so much fucking damage to it that, that we don't want to be associated with it often. And I get that. Yeah. I, I totally yeah. get that. But I think there's still value in our side um, hitting them with that. So I think, and it's fun. That's fun. I'll admit. Um, I'm not above a little bit of tweaking the other side. But the other thing I think that's super, super important when you're going into any of these conversations you know, the holidays are coming up. People are going to be at Thanksgiving with their family who is politically diverse. It's in, adjust your expectations. You are not going to go in and convince somebody that you are right, right yes. then. Like yes. it, go the, the goal of any conversation you have, I think should be twofold. It should be one to create a, a little bit, any amount of cognitive dissonance on the other side. And two, to leave the door open for them to come back to you when they have questions about that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. just the, that for me, that's what I have found to be the most effective. So yep. I, I try to be happy. I try to be polite. I try to be light and I try to ask questions that really just kind of burrow down into their brain that they can't shake right. off so easily. So, I mean, that that's, and I've, I've pulled people out of weird spots. I actually, one of the stories I love to tell is I had, I'll tell two from what my time at FFR. I, one, I was I had an attorney on the other side of a, a case that didn't end up being a case. It ended up, we solved it out of court. But at the end of it, he's like, if I wanted to learn more about your side of things, <laughs> like what book would I read? Like, I don't know, man. I wanna, like, you want to just have a chat sometime? We ended up talking for like 30 minutes. And then he was like, okay, I want you to read this book. And I was like, okay, well, I'll read it if you read this book. And we ended up trading things. And I just kept like, all I did was, whenever we talked was just ask him hard questions that he would then go seek out answers for and not find them in his books because his books don't have answers and come back to and And so this is a lawyer in Texas. And like, 
he's an out atheist now. Like, he's like, yeah, I'm done with all that. Like, and then I had another guy and this was the one time where I've actually convinced somebody on the spot. He called and started screaming at me on the phone. I happened to pick up the phone because I was standing in the kitchen and it was about, it was essentially like, should you be able to deny service to somebody because of their religion? And it was an atheist who was being denied service. And so he was okay with that. And then I, and I said something like, okay, well, what if it was a Jew? Right. He's like, whoa, well, I, that wouldn't be okay. And I'm like, oh, well, what if it was a black person? He's like, no, you went, you went straight for the, the Jewish <laughs> like, one too. Like, yeah, I'm like, 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 whoa, whoa, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, okay then. Do you see the problem? And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry for yelling at you, man. I'm like, okay, just have a nice day. Right, so it's possible, but like that, I mean, I've had probably a thousand of these conversations or more. And that's happened once is my point. Like, I'm not like, it's not going to happen to you. Don't expect it to. Um, so just temper your expectations. Yeah. Don't come to Thanksgiving with talking points. <laughs> like, yeah. No, uh, come with hard questions. Like I love yeah, that. Come with good questions and, yeah. and come. And I think curiosity too, because I think that is a lot more compelling Oh. in relationship it's Act, a lot more- active listening is just devastating to people who are trying to win an argument yes like because <laughs> yeah repeat their points back to them yeah oh it's so you're saying that i your son of however many years wants to kill babies huh that's interesting you know like it, 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 like mm-hmm. it's devastating know. like yeah yeah i mean uh, uh, or when people like, Again, you know, say like oh, liberals, y'all just want to take away everybody's guns. You know, like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I'm a liberal. You know, I own guns. Like, well, you're one of the good ones. Or something, you know, like, interesting. Like, cognitive yeah. dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. So bringing, I think, yeah, pulling at those threads and, and being that person that's just the opposite of what they think. I think there was a, like, Penn and, Penn and Teller, maybe it was. Penn Gillette was on some show or whatever. And he, he talked about being his goal. Like, I want to be the friendly, the kind, the nice atheist, just to like subvert that stereotype for people. I don't know if he succeeded. I don't really know that much about it. I, I have honestly found that to be the most effective thing that you can possibly do. I, yeah. It's one of the reasons that I will go on like any right wing radio show because I'll just smile and laugh through the, like this absurdity. And it's like being in this, this just, I don't like a fun house with all these ridiculous mirrors and I'll just smile and laugh through it. And you're doing more to create cognitive dissonance by not being the yeah. stereotypical depressed, suicidal, awful, whatever, whatever it is, atheist that they've been told, you know, baby eating all that stuff. Like, and, and it, like, uh, do you know, do you know Jesse Lee Peterson or are you familiar with? Unfortunately. Jesse? Yeah. So I've been on his show like eight or nine times. Oh my God. He, <laughs> He genuinely likes me and he can't figure it out. Like, like the, I haven't been on in a couple of years, but the last time I was on, he's like, I don't, he was basically saying like, I don't understand why I like you. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, oh my God. I mean, to me though, that, that does, that speaks to something that our politics have replaced our humanity in some ways. And, or at least I, I would actually say at least for one side of the political spectrum, well, maybe both, but, was like I can be a, like we can just be friends, and we don't have to like tick through the boxes of 
do we agree on everything? Now, I do think that the list of red flags and deal breakers has increased over time. You know, like there's a difference between like someone spouting openly racist bullshit, like probably not going to be your friend, even if you are really great at golf, like probably not going to be that person for you. But yeah, that is that is interesting. Like, I don't know why I like you. I'm supposed to hate you because my ideology says that all of you are terrible. Yeah, that's wild. I think another question that I think it's it's tough to wrestle with is we get this fire hose of news. We get this fire hose of everything, how everything is wrong. And and it is like, I'm not, you know, but what what is it that a regular person reasonably can do to affect change, but without, you know, losing themselves? If, you know, if they're, they're not a lawyer, they're not a politician, they're not, you know, they're just this person that is inflicted with all this information 24 seven. Yeah. What is the, what is a, what is a good strategy? I mean, burning it all down is, should be on the table. Um, We joked about that before going to break, but I mean, there's, you know, especially like there are some serious flaws with our constitution that were baked in from the beginning that yes. it seems like we may not be able to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and we, and, and myself, I include in this, is, you know, go read the founding myth. Like, um, you know, it's, we treat it like this, this hallowed document. Um, it did some really amazing things, but like some really inhumane and terrible shit is, is right in there too. Um, the amazing things happen to be the, the secular aspects of it, separating church and state, declaring that power comes from the people, not from God's leaving out all gods deliberately from the document, banning religious tests for public office, like guaranteeing freedom of speech and religious freedom. These are all things that were, were unique and original to our, our document, but they're like a pretty small percentage of it. Um, there are other things that are like the separation of powers is a good idea. Uh, turns out impeachments, like not a very effective check on corruption or power. So mm-hmm. I don't know, I could throw that one out. But like, I mean, racism is baked in throughout the entire document, including in the like refusal to use the word slavery throughout. And I don't know that you can come back from that. I mean, you can look at things like if you if, if you have not read Ellie Mastal's book, Allow Me to Retort, which came out a couple months ago, it's absolutely fantastic. And he like really moved my needle on this. And especially when talking about like looking at like, for instance, what South Africa did after it's after it ended apartheid, right? It didn't just like... Yeah amend the apartheid constitution like with a few sentences I'm like how oh, we fixed it like it, it yeah. tossed it out and started over and like that's a pretty good point and that constitution is yeah. actually awesome it's a, like yeah. very well so yeah yeah it it does it does seem to me that we are a modern day computer running like windows 95 like it's not i mean it's not a bad analogy no. like or maybe an earlier like <laughs> dos or something like it's like we have a lot of potential here. We have I I feel like I'm not like 100% down on this country and the diversity and the things that we've been able to do, but it's like we're being held back by this operating system that just doesn't it's not even honestly to some of the founding fathers were legitimately terrible people, but it's like I'm also like why are we turning to Thomas Jefferson for his opinion about anything like especially like bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom (laughs) like why does he get a vote 
Like he owned people. Like that's just not like. Sorry, you, you he enslaved you, his children, which is like yes. a pretty fucking impossible yes. thing to get over in my mind. Like, like, yeah. and and he was a degenerate in his time. Like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of his apologists will be like, "Well, the time was different." Like, no, people called him out for that shit even then. So, like, like great. I'm you know the Declaration of Independence. Like you, the first couple lines everyone remembers. People don't remember the indigenous bullshit in the middle, but that aside but like why are we get, continuing to give these folks a vote in how we conduct our lives today and and that that to me seems absurd even from an originalist standpoint which i, I don't again andrew you could speak to it more but I, that feels like bullshit to me oh 100 uh, bullshit nobody should pay attention to it other originalism is the Supreme Court wants to drag us back to a time when conservative white Christian men ruled. Yes. And so they're going to read those words as though they are the gospel and yeah. it drag us back to that time. I think for those of us that came out of conservative evangelicalism, that smacks of like the whole doctrine of inerrancy. Oh, yeah. Uh, or like there is an original meaning that we can find and there's only one of them. And if we find that, that is how we will live our lives. It's like, well, there's so many problems with that already. And also, why are we living our lives by a document that's really old? There are some really actually fascinating ties between originalism and like conservative Christianity and biblical inerrancy and things like that. I mean, I wrote an article about this a while back for Pathios, I think it was, it was a while ago. I'm not, I'm not sure. But it was during, it was, it was around the Brett Kavanaugh time. Um, because it's also it's also got a lot of that flavor of like it's it, it's convenient inerrancy you know it's like it's inerrant except for those parts that I don't want to pay attention to except for the um, taking care of the poor parts yeah like so for and and like the the article centered around um, Brett Kavanaugh decided a case um, and actually I also point out in this article like. It is the more conservatively religious justices that are also more conservative and more prone to originalism. And like Scalia, who believed in a literal devil existing, like was kind of the granddaddy of, of originalism. But Kavanaugh is also an originalist. And there, the presidential oath is laid out in the U.S. Constitution verbatim, like word for word. It's, it's in there in Article 2. And it ends... I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, period. Right. Yeah. So help me God is not in there. And it's in quotation marks in the Constitution. Like, these are the exact original words, the original text. Like, you could not get a more clear example. And there was a lawsuit about whether or not presidents can add the words, so help me God, or whether they're actually just amending the text of the Constitution in the middle of taking the oath, which they kind of are. And so the originalist ought to say in that case, like, well, the original text literally could not be more clear about this. Um, so yeah, you win. But you know, it's only originalism when it works to give them what they want. When it yeah. shows that we are a secular country, whoa, no, no, no. We're gonna go ahead and say, yeah. Yeah, when like, yeah, when like it was John Adams was writing very clearly, like they were going to enter into treaties with like the ottoman empire or something like we because we are in no way a christian nation we can freely trade with muslims and this and that and the other like 
Treaty of it's, Tripoli. Yeah. And fascinating because like I, I love this Treaty of Tripoli, like wonderful, but it was actually negotiated under Washington. So it was negotiated under Washington uh, and the Senate unanimously approved it and then Adam signed it. So it's like every founder you could imagine if you care about the founders. And it says in there, the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion. Yes. But I, we're still a Christian nation, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Like yeah. the founding fathers repeated it over and over that we weren't, but no, trust me, we are. <laughs> like, like that's, yeah, I, I, I heard so many times growing up that we were going to like take America back for God. Like, I'm like, first off, when did God lose it? Um, <laughs> sounds like a him problem. Yeah. Like that, that sounds like God's issue, <laughs> but like when, when is this golden time? Like, like, and if you go back, like, well, you know, back founding father times, like, you know, they allowed women to get abortions early in pregnancy, like, yeah, before oh, well, the quickening. Yeah. So, oh, well, not that, not that time. Okay. So <laughs> when, like, let's just play games here. Like the time they own slaves. Well, not the time they own slaves either. Like, okay. You know, like there's like maybe a window in there from like 1954 to 1956 where America was gods or something. And then when you say like, well, the top <laughs> tax bracket was like 90% in that time. Like, well, yeah. we get, you know, different times. Not that different times yes. yeah. yeah we should definitely bring that back oh yeah. I, yeah that by itself honestly would solve a lot <laughs> yeah. a lot of problems think of how yeah. many wars we could start <laughs> that's a lot it's a lot of missiles it's a, a lot, lot of, of contracts tax, a lot of tax money <laughs> um i was thinking so, about solar panels but you're right yeah yeah, I this blew me. This fact blew me away. Was that Carter put solar panels on the White House? Yeah, had a very robust climate agenda. Yeah, even then, like this is late seventies, and Ronald Reagan made a big deal out of ripping the solar panels out of the White House. To be fair, they do cause cancer and kill birds and other things. I'm told. I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because that the sun does that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That is a true statement. Yeah. But I think we should uh, get rid of the sun because it, it does cause a lot of cancer. So true. I feel like, you know, pros and cons. Yeah, it seems pretty con. It does. It really does. I mean, mm. I guess it's not necessarily the sun's fault that a certain demographic of people decided to live somewhere where there was too much sun for their skin to handle yeah yeah without turning on itself we've we've said that you know white people don't belong below the 45th parallel <laughs> just don't i mean with climate change it's probably it's it's moving up i know i was yeah. saying like 60 probably yeah yeah, yeah. oh my god so uh Anything yeah. else, Andrew, you want to get to say to our audience about about the book, about what is happening in the world? Um, Tips I, I, for your mental health. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're looking for like mental health and not to freak out about the future, maybe don't. Maybe American Crusade is not the book for you. I don't know. <laughs> I recommend hiking. 
Um, <laughs> walks yep. outside without your phone are good. I guess if you want to take photos, like that's cool. Um, Just put on sunscreen. <laughs> put on sunscreen, unless you're above the 60th and then you're probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I will say, I, I do think we are like up against, we are fighting authoritarianism and fascism. And we were talking about adjusting your expectations earlier for having conversations with family. And I think that we also have to adjust our expectations when it comes to politics and like what, what power we have and what we can expect. I like to tell people that, that voting is literally the least you can do to affect change. It's like Stacey Abrams talks about it, like medicine, you have to take it. I, it's Voting is what gives us a chance to possibly make change. You still have to do a whole lot of organizing and fighting and you have to win the elections too. And I mean, we are up against fascism and it's not, it's not going to quit anytime soon. We can hopefully bury it or push it back to the fringe, but don't, don't expect to just go into the ballot box and, you know, Tick a pick a box on a form and then be well. I have done my part to defeat the evil empire. Um, <laughs> and then throw your hands up like, oh, voting doesn't work. Like, like, well, yeah. voting isn't isn't a cure all. I mean, it's really not there. And, and I mean, the, I, like, the, this is the other part of it is like, just like you have to temper your expectations for any conversation that you're going to have with a Christian nationalist, you have to temper your expectations for what we can do in, in the near term, like the, the crusaders spent 40 to 50 years capturing our courts and working on this crusade. And I do go over some solutions that we could implement sooner rather than later in the book. But like, it's, it's not something that we're going to turn around in a year or two or probably even three mm-hmm. or four. Like it, they played a long game and they're doing massive damage right now. And it's going to take a lot for us to dig out of that hole. I, I do believe we will do it. And I, I, if I can leave people with maybe, maybe a little bit of hope is that I, I think in the end we are going to win because they're wins, right? Like, like in the abortion case, in, in the case of the coach who imposed his prayer on other people's kids uh, that the Supreme Court handed down, uh, in all of the cases in the book, in the Master Reese Cape Shop case that we discussed, right? Their wins swell our ranks, right? Mm-hmm. They're creating this feedback loop. And, and remember, the, the whole reason for this crusade in the first place is demographics. They're, they're watching the demographics slip. But they're also, white Christian nationalists are also working to privilege the chosen few. So every legislative and legal victory they notch alienates more people. It wakes more people up to the danger. It drives more people to defend, uh, you know, the separation of church and state. So their power-hungry aggression is actually growing our mm-hmm. movement. And, yeah. and remember, right, they're crusading because we are working to meet those unmet promises that that the self-evident truth that all are created equal that that we the people means all the people and you know previous generations have failed pretty miserably sometimes to realize those aspirations and they've left it to their kids their children to contend with human tragedies like slavery and segregation and the subjugation of women and discrimination against lgbtq people and now the climate crisis but as we march toward progress, it's the Christian nationalists that are fighting harder against it. So they're, they're not going to go gently. They're going to rage against the dying of their privilege. But, 
but I do believe we are going to win in the end because they are fighting only for themselves and, and where mm-hmm. they are selfish, mm-hmm. we are selfless. So, you know, I mean, our, our work, the work I do every day at Americans United, you know, it, it allows Americans to come together as equals and build a stronger democracy. That is what the Crusaders are fighting so hard against, but that's also why I, I believe um, and I will fight until we, we triumph. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. For those of you that are able to, you can check out the book. Pretty, It's out now, yes. Anywhere. It's out now. My publisher hates it when I say it, but I don't care if you buy it. I just want you to read it. Go get it from your library. If your library doesn't have a copy, ask them to get it. They'll get a copy yeah, for you. Ask your library to get a copy. Yes. That's important. Don't yeah. order it from Amazon though. Order it from Powell's. Yeah. Uh, bookshop.org. If you're not in the Portland area, also will support your local bookstore. Uh, so you can oh, order sweet. it through there. Um, and then I have like one of the coolest bookstores in the country is right here in my hometown, my current hometown, Madison, Wisconsin. It's BIPOC trans owned independent bookstore um, and they're offering signed copies so if you go to bit.ly slash signed ac like signed american crusade you'll you'll get put eventually to the room of one's own website and um Mm. you get to i'll do a signed book for you through there um they they make great gifts for the holidays for those believers that you're going to be having those thanksgiving conversations (laughs) with yeah 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 if a, if a Thanksgiving conversation goes sour, you can always buy this for just Christmas. Pull, yeah. Just here, read <laughs> just this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. And, and, and if you do buy it, uh, make sure you review it, give it a five-star review, positive review. I know you probably have, you probably, if you haven't yet, you will have many review bombers. I, I have a, I had had a couple before the book even came out, they found the Goodreads page and some, some message board somewhere targeted it. And I got most of them removed, but there's still a few, just no reviews, but a bunch of one stars. The Goodreads seems to be doing it, but so yes, I would appreciate if, if you like yes. it and enjoy it, please go yes. leave five stars. That'd be appreciated. And, uh, and also give this podcast a five-star review while you're just handing out five stars yes please do so. you can also check us out on uh discord or not discord you can check us out on patreon patreon.com slash go home bible uh, if you want to support us monetarily uh, if you um i was gonna say if you can't do you have a five-star review um but you could give the five-star there's, prob- there's there's some problems if you can't <laughs> yeah but if you can't give us a five-star review and you want to support us monetarily go for it i guess but um uh so Andrew, where can people find you if you want to be found? I'm Andrew L. Seidel, S-E-I-D-E-L, on all of the things. I'm on the TikTok even now. Super addictive, by the way. Don't do it. It is. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, Twitter, all, Instagram, that's my website URL too. That's so everywhere. I'm Andrew L. Seidel. All right. And oh, uh, we okay, are Americans actual... United is au.org. Okay. au.org. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're at Go Home Bible on all the things. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and hope you have a wonderful week. And yeah, don't get overwhelmed. Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just 
that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.